0: The world is like a marketplace. And the sad reality is, over the last decades or so, is that the church is in danger of becoming like the marketplace too. But we are Christians. And because we are Christians, we must always remember, regardless of what year it is, regardless of what our culture says or society says, We need to see the Bible's image of the world and how it works differently to us. Because according to Scripture, the world is not finally a marketplace, but a kingdom belonging to God. And as Christians living in a a self-centred world where, where we want things that please us, we make decisions that please us. I think we need this reality more than ever. You see, the driving force of a kingdom is not the competition of rival sellers, but the power of an unrivaled kingly throne. And we must always remember that. You see, the center of a kingdom is not individual choice, but the will of the sovereign. A kingdom is described not with words like preference, options or alternatives, but authority, obligation, loyalty, submission and calling. Paul's letter is to churches struggling to grasp the market and the kingdom. And we need to recognise one really important truth of why the church is in danger of becoming the marketplace. You see, when Christianity becomes widespread, when Christianity comes to a place in in its fullness, where lots of people all at once, and we see this in the New Testament, where lots of people become Christian, Satan will act. But you know, he often doesn't try and prevent gospel growth. He doesn't try and prevent often the growth of Christianity. But what he does is he tries and he seeks and works his way that people just get a little bit of it. They get a little bit of it. He lets them get the religion bit. That the social aspects say have been a part of a church family. He lets them get a little bit of spirituality. But he works to remind them of the marketplace, that there are greater desires. For the Christian, that there are, are different ways of doing things for the Christian, that the Christian can make choices actually of whether they really want to live a Christian life or do a little bit of the world as well. Now, what he does is you see, he calls this superficial Christianity. Because that type of Christianity doesn't change the heart. Well, this letter is a, a big reminder that there is a king on his throne demanding our obedience to him. And he writes to his young mission partner, Titus, to encourage him in this matter. And he says three really important things that we can learn today that are so important for the church today, for Christians today. And the first thing is this. It's really, you can't have future hope You can't have that future hope of eternal life without present godliness. You can't have future hope without present godliness. And we see that in verses 1 to 4. The reason verse 1 Paul spells out who he is, he's writing this letter to be read throughout many churches in Crete. He wants to uh, establish his authority. He's a servant of God, literally a slave of God. And an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he wants to make clear to these people his authority to speak to them. And then we see what he wants to do. You see, the first thing Paul wants to do is to lift the eyes of his hearers above this world. It's temporary trappings, it's desires and values. And he points us to the living, sovereign God. And he does this to teach these Christians about a way of a heavenly life. He wants to teach them about a way of a heavenly life that is different to the marketplace, that is different to the world. And it's a life that is meant to be lived now. And he calls it, verse 1, godliness. You see, godliness cuts across the culture of the day. It's never out of date, it's distinct from the ways of the world and it flows directly from the throne of God. And Paul wants his hearers not just to have a knowledge of Christianity, but a changed heart. A personal knowledge. A knowledge that changes lives. He wants to see churches full of Christians whose lives have been genuinely changed by the Gospel, by the Lord Jesus. Not religious people swayed by the latest spiritual fad, or as we'll see, by the latest thoughts of individuals but whose hearts have grasped this wonderful connection that we see in verses 1-2. Paul's job, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. What Paul is saying is that true knowledge leads to a changed heart true knowledge of the Gospel, true knowledge of the Lord Jesus, leads to a changed heart. And the result of a changed heart, based on knowledge of the truth of the Gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus, always leads to godliness. Or it should lead to godliness. And the result of that is confidence in the hope of eternal life. See the pattern? Knowledge of the truth, to further the faith of their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope, godliness in the hope, confidence in the hope of eternal life. And then Paul says something wonderful. This is promised by God. God promised it, and Paul preached it. The God, verse 2, who never lies. You know, I preached these uh, chapters, crikey, probably when I was about 20, 21, 22. I did a three-weeks evening series. I'm quite interested to listen to them again. I bet they're dreadful. Probably saying that in a few years about this. But we, we trust that, and I, I never noticed that bit. It was a shock to me when I read it again. The God who never lies. You see, that was such an important point that Paul's making to Titus about Crete. Because he says, doesn't he, in verse 12, Cretans are liars. But the problem is, is that we live in a society like Crete, don't we? Full of liars. We make promises and we break them. We live in a world of promises not kept. Why? Because we lie. Yes, we might strive to keep them, but there are many times that we lie. We lie to loved ones, we lie to work colleagues, we lie to our bosses, we lie to so many people. Paul wants to say there is something so different about God. God never lies. He has made a wonderful promise of eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone. And you know, isn't it great to have future hope, especially in our future decay? Especially as we can't really have much hope in ourselves, can we? We can have hope in a God who makes promises and never lies. This promise is for those who are truly Christian, whose hearts are genuinely transformed by Jesus through faith. They grasp the truth that leads to godliness. Godliness to live for now. And this really is a theme throughout the letter This living a life of godliness. We see it there in uh, verse 16 of chapter 1. They claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. They're not godly, therefore their lives aren't evident. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Those who are fit for doing good things for God are the godly people. Those who who are furthering their faith of the knowledge of the truth, leading to godliness now. A changed life. We see it in chapter 2, verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Set them an example by your godliness. Chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. People who are eager for godliness. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the peoples to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. The link between godliness and the godly life. And then chapter 3 verse 14 our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good you see lots of lots of peoples want to do good things but what Paul is saying the theme of this letter the path to godliness is only when our hearts and our lives are being truly changed genuinely from ungodliness to godliness And it is only then, Paul is saying, that we can have that absolute confidence in our future hope of eternal life. And can I just say, the change from ungodliness to godliness can be a painful thing for many people. Relationships can be broken. Friendships can be lost. Because the process of ungodliness to godliness means having to give things up. Namely, our sinful nature. The things that we do wrong. The, th- the way perhaps we live our life. It has to change. And it's on that change, that trust in the truth of God's Word and the Gospel, the change from sinner to saint, that is where our hope lies. That is where our hope lies. I wonder what, you, what do you hope in? Lots of people hope for things, don't they? But so often they have absolutely no foundation. They are unrealistic hopes, and they never have any chance of getting it. When we were kids at school, Top Trumps—they're big again now. We got everything we got: Nathan, SpongeBob SquarePants, Top Trumps for Christmas—brilliant. Isabel's got One Direction Top Trumps. I refuse to play that with her. Hello Kitty Top. You got all sorts of Top. we used to just have cars, supercars, and every time we played. The only card that anybody really wanted to get was the Lamborghini Countach. I think that's waste, isn't it? That's the only card we wanted to get because it was the best car, because the doors went like that. Apparently, if you watch Top Gear, they were rubbish. But they looked, the business, we all wanted one. We all wanted one. We hoped for one. But it was an empty hope. It was an empty hope. We were never going to get it. You see, people who hope for eternal life without present godliness, without a change, without the gospel changing them, are like most people's hope, empty hope. So Paul says that our confidence in the future depends on our present godliness, that change that Christians most must go through when they turn to Christ. But then Paul says, secondly, that it's actually quite hard to get present godliness without godly leaders. We see that in verses 5 to 9. It's actually quite hard to get present godliness without godly leaders. It's not impossible. But let's remind ourselves of Crete. It wasn't a great place. Remind ourselves of chapter 1, verse 12. One of their own people. It's always best, isn't it, when it comes from one of their own. It comes from philosopher uh, Pimitra, apparently he was a very very popular philosopher he was very well thought of high regards to a lot of philosophers who followed and he says this that Cretans are always liars evil brutes lazy gluttons that was the place that Paul the senior pastor left his little young associate pastor to straighten out verse 5 you can imagine the daunting task, couldn't you? But you see, a culture like that, that has been reached with the Gospel, that has seen people's lives changed, needs to have churches with leaders who lead by example. Who live out, verse 1, that their faith is growing and their knowledge of the truth is leading them into godliness. Because if that's not there from those who lead, then what chance have the church family got? How are young converted Christians going to be led and discipled without godly leaders to take them and encourage them? It seems clear then that from this letter that what Paul states to Titus as a sort of measuring stick for leaders comes from the situation in verse 5 that you might put in order because it's clearly out of order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, the problem which Titus faced is a problem which we face today. There was a big gap between what people say they believe and how they actually behave. A big gap between what people say they believe and how they actually behave. You see, churches had been planted, but they weren't in good shape. They were trying to plant churches and build churches and build congregations in a place that was riddled with sin, that was riddled with ungodliness. And Timothy, uh, Titus was there to put leaders in place, godly leaders, who would encourage, who would change. Change these young Christians who were so tempted and, and, and confused and swayed by what's going on around them. Paul says, you have got to help sort out this problem and tr- help lead people into godliness. So Titus is to appoint godly leaders, elders. The word elder means bishop or presbyter. Paul also uses the same word in verse 7 for overseer. And elders would be the people who had authority over the church. In the Church of England, uh, the same word presbyter was used for the vicar. But in other churches, you have an eldership. And they are the ones who direct all affairs, both practical and spiritual, of the church. But the lessons are vital, aren't they, for all levels of leadership? We need to model godliness to children, don't we? Because half of what children, how they learn is what they see. So if they see us saying one thing and then doing another thing, they get confused. We need that with new Christians. We need that with growing Christians. We need that in all those. We need godly leaders. And what Paul is directing Titus to do here is appoint godly men who are clearly practicing what they preach. The truth of the gospel has genuinely penetrated their hearts and godliness is visible in the way they act. They're not perfect. Isn't that a good job? But they are striving for godliness. They are striving to do what is right in God's eyes. And notice the characteristics in these verses. The characteristics of the heart, I think, really, aren't they? An elder must be blameless. Faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe. We need to be careful what we mean by that word, believe. I think it's respectful and, and trustworthy. It's similar in uh, Timothy, I think. Paul says, how can, an elderly, how can someone run a church if they can't manage their household? But they're not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. He, he says you've got to look for characteristics from the heart. They're the, the blameless, as in... the. They're above reproach. They live in such a way that doesn't contradict what they say they believe. Now that means doesn't mean that you know one strike and you're out. We make one mistake, unless it's a huge mistake. But actually, they need to be above reproach. The very centre of our being seats God, not myself. No, they're faithful. They're not lusting over the opposite sex or or being led into temptation by sexual sin. They need to be someone who leads a a family in such a way that their children are respectful and obedient to their parents. Look at verse 7. They control their behaviour in their quest for purity. They don't allow their minds to be clouded. They're not overbearing, quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness. Not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. They're trustworthy, not dishonest. You see, I think Paul is clearly using characteristics that was probably relevant and daily acknowledged and seen in Crete. Attitudes of people who aren't blameless, who aren't faithful, whose children are wild and disobedient overbearing quick-tempered drunkards violence pursuing dishonest gain Paul says that is not the way rather verse 8 just look at the characteristics he must be hospitable someone who cares and wants to engage in that relationship that fellowship with other believers one who loves what is good who desires godliness goodness the goodness of God who is self-controlled who is able or working at it to control all their desires, their thoughts, their actions, their deeds. They're upright, they're acknowledged within the community as as godly people, good people, trustworthy, and they are disciplined. On the notice, verse 9, he says this, doesn't he? He says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You see, modelling godliness is so important. That's Paul's desire that Titus appoints godly leaders who model godliness, who model the change. That is so important in any church in leadership. But it must also be based on the truth of Scripture because it will not lead people into true biblical godliness that God seeks. But a church hopefully will grow into godliness as scripture is taught faithfully, applied faithfully under apostolic authority for that encourages and breeds godliness as people trust it, as people allow it to penetrate their hearts. There is nothing greater than hearing the Word of God faithfully taught if we are Christians. We should desire it. We should pray that God will change us through it. And the result is that our hearts and our lives will be changed. But also when we stand firm on the truth of god's word and we encourage believers through it paul says there will be that painful task of refuting those who oppose it but for the sake of godliness it does need to be done you know remember that phrase one bad apple spoils the bunch i googled that somebody actually sent a request in saying is that true i think they missed the point And they were more focused on real apples than what lies behind it. Paul warns the Ephesians, doesn't he, of of wolves in sheep's clothing. It doesn't take many people to destroy a church within. It only takes one or two with false ideas, false beliefs, a distorted understanding of the Gospel, a distorted message, And they can so easily get a few people around them and influence them and and change a few people over here. And before you know it, it's widespread. It is like a disease. One bad apple can spoil the bunch. But yet it's so important to correct, to challenge, because it will lead people away from true godliness. That's why it's so important to have godly leaders who are behaving in such a way that is consistent with the truth. What's Paul's job? To further the faith of God's people, their knowledge of the truth. Because that leads to godliness and assurance of eternal life. And Paul is sure that if Titus can do this, it will straighten out what was unfinished. And it will lead to godliness. Of course we can grow independently, individually in godliness. But if churches are to grow into the churches that God has called us to be, as we were reminded this morning, if we are to be the church in Broadgate, in Christ Jesus, we need to be in His truth. For Christ is the Word, remember. The Word of God made flesh. And He appointed apostles to become our authority of what we believe and live by. Thirdly, The alternative to this is disastrous. Verses 10 to 16. Paul paints this really sad picture of a church that is in danger of becoming inseparable from society. Verse 10, look at that. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So those who were Jews, who have become Christians, but are teaching false truths, false things, false gospels. As well as other people who were converted, probably pagans from Crete, who were bringing in things that they have been brought up on as well. There were people in the church who were not willing to come under the authority of God's Word. Instead, Paul said, they were deceivers. They were making people think, probably, that they had eternal life when they hadn't. They were infecting the church, verse 11. They were literally turning households' lives upside down because of what they were teaching. People were becoming confused. Well, we thought we heard this from Paul, but you're saying this. What do I believe? Actually, what what, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, they were saying things like, well, yeah, come to church, join in, you'll be okay. It doesn't matter how you live your life. You can still carry on doing that. That's all right. I'm sure God doesn't mind. Paul says they must be silenced. Not just for the sake of the gospel, but for the sake of godliness. And he uses this wonderful phrase in verse twelve. It's one of those it's not what I'm saying about the people of Crete. Look at what one of your own is saying. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Very politically correct, wasn't it? Thing to say. You see, what Paul's saying is these people, these rebellious people, they are they are the type of religion that they are modelling is the same as Cretan society. That's why Paul says, look, this saying is true, it's evident, and we're seeing it now in the church. Therefore, sort it out, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith. Paul wants even the rebellious people to come under the sound teaching of the Gospel, under apostolic authority. The truth of God's Word, the Lord Jesus. You see, truth didn't matter to them. Truth was cheap. It was cheaper, apparently in Cretan society. They had many gods. And these many gods taught many ways of living. And it goes back to the marketplace. You could choose whichever philosophy of the day you wanted. Because that was alright and God was fine with that. Go for what pleases you. Yet their hearts, their lives were determined ultimately by dishonest gain. Verse 11. Popularity. What they get out of it. They reject the truth. They were corrupt. They don't believe the truth. They're impure. See that in those verses. This saying is true, verse 13 onwards. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the, or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, then nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. These are people within the church, coming into the church, trying to influence others. Yet here is the issue, verse 16. They were sitting in churches. They were singing the hymns. They were reciting the creeds, if they had them then. They were giving the loud amens at the end of prayers. But Paul says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, their behavior, they deny Him. They deny Him because they deny the truth that leads to godliness. But to the pure, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. They're not led astray by false teaching. They're not led astray by the myths of the day, the, the human commands, the rituals, the culture, the society, whatever the society is saying. To the pure, all things are pure. When people are truly purified through the Gospel, they will see through, they will see through what is not pure. Pure. They know what purity is because, verse 1, their faith and their knowledge of the truth is leading to godliness, true godliness, and greater confidence in the promise of eternal life. This is such an important issue that is so relevant in the church today. This is our call as God's elect people to grow in godliness. And away from ungodliness. Because ungodliness gives us no assurance. Of the hope. Of eternal life. Which God who does not lie. Promised before the beginning of time. Let's pray. Father God it is so easy to be swayed by the world, the teaching of the world, the desire of the world. Yet for many Christians, it is so hard to pursue godliness. Yet that is our call, to be godly. So Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your strength to be so transformed by the gospel of grace that we desire more of your grace. And we pray that your Spirit will stir our hearts to your truth. We will seek it and live it out. We will practice what we preach so that we are built up into the people you have called us to be. Father God, you are the God of this church. May we submit to your heavenly authority to our higher calling, which is in heaven. Please help us. Help us to do it together. Help us to encourage one another. But also at times, Lord, give us the courage to challenge anything that is not of you, anything that is false, anything that is untrue, anything that is contradictory to the gospel, for the sake of your people, we pray. Amen.